This is Martyr She Wrote, and I'm Anna Clark Miller, a religious trauma therapist. This podcast is for survivors of religious trauma and abuse, so consider this your trigger warning. If you want to learn more or support the podcast financially, check out my new book called The Religious Trauma Survival Guide. Details are at empathyparadigm.com. Don't worry, though, you can still listen even if you haven't contributed financially. <laughs> Let's dive into a topic that's serious as hell. Martyrs, I am thrilled to introduce you to my guest today because not only is she someone who I think is very wise and has a lot of very valid stuff to say on this topic, but she's also like literally one of my very favorite people in the world. Uh, it is my sister, Twyla Axelson. Twyla, welcome. I'm so glad to have you on the show finally. Yeah, thanks for the intro. We've been talking about doing this for a long time, so I'm really glad that we're making it happen. Yeah. So you and I grew up in a missionary family, pastor's kids, missionary kids, and you are also currently working on getting your uh, full licensure in counseling. So we both kind of have this shared past religious trauma slash just, you know, unusual religious experience. And we have the like sort of psychology background now. One might say they're not quite as unrelated as you would think. <laughs> <laughs> yep, they are probably related. So would you say that you have experienced religious trauma? And if so, what was that like? I would say... I mean, I feel like religious trauma is almost unavoidable when you spend as much time in the church and in ministry-related contexts like we did. Um, but there's probably some differences in which kinds of traumas we experienced. So we lived near each other a lot as adults. But you went to college when I was like seven? Yeah, you were in second grade. And so, like, I feel like our parents have learned a lot from raising you and our brother, but maybe not quite as much as they needed to. <laughs> um, and so I think some of the trauma is definitely related to uh, family dynamics and being raised by really diehard missionaries um, and and then kind of playing second fiddle to that a little bit as their children um, and not really getting the kind of warmth and affection and kind of that secure attachment stuff that we needed early on. And I think, you know, a lot of people who aren't in ministry, their parents aren't in ministry related jobs have a similar thing, but I would, I would, consider that a religious trauma because it was tied to the fact that they were doing missions, that that we were kind of expected to perform and be a certain way. So it, it wasn't like, you know, mom and dad just kind of worked a lot. And so we were neglected or something like that. It was like their whole lives and identities were wrapped up in what they did as a profession. And so mm -hmm. kind of felt like ours were too. Yeah, yeah, for sure. It was it was definitely chosen for us and not really, we didn't really have much of a say in that. So um, I would say that is a big part of it. Um, and then also, I think, I don't want to get too much into it, but having parents being in ministry who then came home and maybe treated us in, in ways that were not Christ-like, <laughs> to say the least. I think uh, it was kind of seeing a two-faced kind of example mm -hmm. was really confusing. And like, we're, are, we're preaching one thing, but then I'm experiencing something very different behind closed doors. Yeah. Anyway, so I would say that's, that was a big part of it, of religious trauma. And then, and then I think just like, you know, a lot of, of the, the stuff that kind of a basic manipulation of emotion and stuff that happened that I think anyone who grew up in a church 
could kind of relate to of like, you know, going to youth camp and that kind of thing. And that's, that's not really trauma as much as it is just <laughs> uh, messed up. Yeah. It's not a super healthy way of seeing things. Right. But I think the other place that I really experienced religious trauma was uh, working in a church for a while. I uh, did an internship at a church. It's actually where I met my husband. And I was like a summer internship during college that I did. And then eventually they hired me on staff after I graduated. And actually you worked there too. Yeah, I did. (laughs) Um, You worked there for a lot longer than I did. Yeah, like seven years. Uh Uh-huh. And um, there were a lot of positive things that came from that. There were a lot of really wonderful people that we met there. But there was also a lot of like serious dysfunction happening in the church and, you know, kind of getting to see behind the curtain of what goes on, um, like the church politics and how people are compensated and how people are treated, how women are treated compared to how men are treated. Um, yeah. And how conflict was managed. How conflict is managed. I, I had a really bad experience with an employer there and was lied about, mistreated. And then when we brought that to leadership, it was the way that it was dealt with was basically like I wasn't believed and then kind of asked to dismiss myself from being on staff. It was just, it was very, all very shady and it it felt really icky. Yeah, I remember you telling me about that when it happened and you just felt really ganged up on and not supported or validated. Yes. And then my husband was on staff at the church at the time. And it was while we were still engaged that all of that kind of went down. And he was protective, but also like really felt called into ministry. And and so it, it just created this messy dynamic I mean, he always had my back, but he also like felt like his opinion wasn't validated. And when he brought his concerns forward, that that wasn't validated. Yeah. Yeah. So, so that, that was another pretty traumatic experience in religion that happened. And, and I do want to say, you know, I know you've talked about your story on here and we've ended up in very different places. You and I, Mm -hmm. I am still in the church. So my husband and I still attend a different church, not that same one. We, we left uh, a little bit after all of that kind of went down. Yeah. But like currently you identify as Christian. Identify as Christian. My husband is actually on staff at a different church now. Um, he worked in children's ministry at the last church and now he works in technology. It's actually been really cool because he, he took a break from working at a church for a while. He worked at a school for a little bit, and then he worked at another technology type place for a while. And when he said that he was looking into working at the church that we were attending, I was like, oh, no. Like, I, it really, like, is a pit in my stomach. I was like, I don't know if I want to go back into this world. Especially, like I said, like, being behind that curtain and seeing everything. But it was ultimately like, well, if we're going to attend here and we're going to, like, belong to this group of people in a way, like we should probably not be worried about what we'll find. And if we are worried about that, then that's a big problem. So he actually uh, joined the staff um, a couple years ago, the same week that our first child was born. Uh, That was almost three years ago. Oh my gosh, you're right. That was three years ago. Jeez, insane. And uh, I remember being super nervous and just like the time since then, it's just been almost like a healing salve in a way. I hate that word. I don't know why I use that word. That's such a gross word. <laughs> yes, yeah, salve is nasty. <laughs> <laughs> but it's been really healing in a lot of ways for, for both of us. Because when we kind of went back and were able to see kind of how everyone interacted and what politics were like behind the scenes and how everyone was treated, like it was just really sweet to see that it was done well and that like they had a licensed professional counselor on staff who helped inform decision making for leadership and like 
they, you know, obviously like that's kind of a luxury that not all churches have, but I think like bringing in people who can actually help make those decisions from a educated point of view, like it just made such a huge difference. And just, it, it wasn't a bunch of pastors trying to be therapists. It was, you know, like, Hey, let's, let's bring in the professionals here. And that's not to say that, that the church where we attend hasn't made mistakes and, you know, hurt people. Of course. Sure, there are plenty of people who could say they have, but I think that it was the deeply different culture and very much like wanting to learn and wanting to do things well and protect their people and not trying to cut corners or, you know, looking out for, you know, the big guys. It was like, yeah, it's been a really safe place um, to both belong to his members and then also for my husband to work. And so that's been a really cool experience. But those are those are some of the main religious traumas that I would say I've encountered. Yeah, thank you so much for sharing that. Um, something that I want to focus on today is just how kids are impacted by religious trauma or can be. Um, you know, obviously you and I have our own experiences with that, and we can talk a little more about that in a minute. Um, but I'm wondering just like from your perspective as a therapist and as a mom of two little kids, how do you think kids potentially are impacted by like complicated religious messages, especially at the early childhood stages of development? Yeah. So I think there's been a lot of research in the last couple decades about that, that our parents and all of the generations before that didn't have. And I think we've started caring more about kids in the last 20 to 30 years um, and realizing that they're like actually human and the things that they experience when they're little actually impact their lives. And that's important to care about. Mm hmm. And so, so I think that that's a helpful thing for people like me who are now raising children and being like, oh, okay, so like, this is an important time. Like, you may not ever have like long-term memories of this time in your life, but it's still impacting how you see the world. But so basically, research tells us that we start developing our patterns for attachment and emotional regulation and how we deal with stress and anxiety and all of that kind of stuff from, I mean, infancy. So that's happening really, really, really early on. Mm -hmm. And I think for a lot of people, um, there's kind of two extremes that people can fall into with their kids is either never addressing issues with their kids. And so kids learning about stuff outside of the home. And so the parents, parents don't actually have any say in those kinds of topics because they're like, oh, well, and I think this happens a lot in churches of like, oh, well, like their Sunday school teachers will teach them about that or their mentor or whatever will teach them about that. Yeah. And so there's that extreme of like, this isn't really my job or like, just really relying on and trusting somebody else. Yeah. Trusting someone else and, and kind of pawning that responsibility off or being uncomfortable about talking about sex with your kids because, you know, they're not supposed to be having sex and then springing it on them like the night before they get married, like I had happened to me. Uh, Samesies. <laughs> it's almost like we had the same mom. <laughs> yeah. But um, so there's that extreme. And then there's the other extreme of introducing like topics that should be addressed at some point at inappropriate times in development. Hmm. So like coming in, with like a, you know, say a six-year-old and talking about the spiritual realm and demons and stuff like that is probably not an appropriate time to be dealing with that subject with a kid. Okay, I totally agree. But why wouldn't that be developmentally appropriate? So, I mean, it, it can be as simple as like the way that we know that children's brains develop, and, and I'm not going to go into a crazy amount of detail, but, you know, Kids are developing 
being able to to not just think literally. Also, I mentioned the term attachment earlier. Um, if they haven't developed through certain stages of attachment where they feel secure, they feel safe, and they like understand that, then throwing a wrench like that into it can be really harmful. Can create a lot of fear and anxiety. And there's, it's kind of like trying to teach an eight-year-old how to drive a stick shift. It's like, well, that that's not really appropriate. And it's like, we can kind of all understand why that is. And it's like, well, this is a little bit more intricate and behind the scenes and it's in how their brains are developing. But now we know that like, that's not healthy. They cannot process it at a certain age, at least not in a healthy way. Yeah. And I think another element of it that really gets me is like the ability to think in symbols and like abstract thought, because kids don't develop that until they're about 12 or so and, you know, sometimes older. And so like there's a lot of religious ideas that cross over from concrete into abstract symbolism and it's super hard to like explain that or introduce that idea to a kid without them taking it very, very literally. You know, like if you're talking about demons or spiritual warfare or something, then they're going to be like picturing a literal monster, you know, that's like lurking around. And that's that's terrifying for a kid that doesn't know how to sort of separate what's literally happening right now in front of them versus, uh, you know, ideas that just feel scary. And, you know, even something as simple as like with my daughter, we read her this book called the Jesus Storybook Bible. And it's like, it has a bunch of stories from the Bible in it. And they're all like really kitted down and, you know, they're pretty pictures and stuff like that. Um, but there's stories that we skip still because she is just about three. Uh-huh. And so like even the story of the crucifixion, uh, like that is really intense for a three-year-old. Yeah, no kidding. Stories like there's a story in it about a little girl that Jesus raised from the dead. You know, like that book is geared for children ages like four to like 12. And so I'm not reading that to my two year old <laughs> because she's going to be like, wait, what? Like she barely knows what dead means. And so like, not just trusting that like, oh, it says Jesus storybook Bible and it's for kids. So all of this must be appropriate for my children. Like you, you need to be informed for yourself as a parent to know what's appropriate for your children. Right. And just because something is scripture doesn't mean that you have a free pass that all of it's appropriate for your kids. The same way you're not going to let your kids watch, you know, certain movies, like certain parts of scripture are going to be too overwhelming, especially when you're talking about toddlers and young children. Because that kind of, like you said, that conceptual understanding of what's literal, what's symbolic, all of that develops later. Oh my gosh. Okay. Core memory just unlocked. Um, (laughs) You know that story in the Bible about when there's like a guy that's demon possessed and Jesus like casts out the demons into a herd of pigs nearby. Mm Mm-hmm. And then like all the pigs run, uh, they're like frothing at the mouth and they like run into the ocean and drown. Well, I remember like hearing that story and then being really worried and stressed out when I would see dogs that were like barking a lot. If they seemed like they were more upset than they should be, I was like, oh my gosh, what if they have a demon? Like I was terrified. No. (laughs) Uh, Do you have any stories like that of like religious stuff that freaked you out or like really scared you? Yeah, so... Probably the biggest one that comes to mind is the Left Behind series. Oh, I remember that. So if you are <laughs> haven't had the pleasure of enjoying those movies slash books, um, I didn't read books because ADHD, so I didn't do that. But the, the movies are they're basically a dramatization of like someone's interpretation of the, the book of Revelation in the Bible. And so it's like set in like today, you know, like 
probably 2002 at the time. But um, it's about like all of these people who went through what's the word for it? The, you mean the rapture? The rapture. The rapture, which, by the way, is not a word used in the Bible. And it's like all of these people get sucked up to heaven and that that are Christians. And then all of the other people are like left behind, hence the title. And it's basically like Armageddon, like the world is falling apart and it's all the like end times, all that. Mm-hmm. And there's specifically one part of it that really freaked me out. And it is the pastor of this church in the movies was like, you know, getting ready in the morning and like going in to like, you know, preach or whatever. And he gets there and like none of his congregation show up. Oh. Which also is helpful to me that like, oh, everyone in this church knows Jesus. Yeah, apparently he was an amazingly effective preacher. (laughs) Right. (laughs) But the storyline as it goes is that like this whole time, like he's believed that he was a Christian, but it turns out like he's the pastor of the church, but like he was left behind and wasn't really a Christian ever. Dark. His whole life was a lie. And the whole thing about it was that, like, he was surprised. Like, he was like, wait, what? And and that, like, freaked me out. Oh, my gosh. How old were you when you were watching this? Mm, I would say, like, seven or eight. Oh, my gosh. I was like, hold on. So you're saying that I can believe for my whole life that I know Jesus and then, like, All of a sudden, out of left field, I'm going to just be abandoned. And my whole, like all my family and friends who know Jesus, they're all going to go get to be in heaven and dancing and happy, whatever. Right. They're all having a pizza party in heaven. Heaven pizza party. And I'm going to be alone. And I'm, you know, I'm eight years old. I'm going to be alone. Yeah. And it's all going to have been a lie. Like I will have just be totally surprised. I won't have my parents. I won't have my siblings. I won't have any friends. That's so sad. And and like from that day forward, I worried about my salvation daily, like on a daily basis. Like, how can I be sure that I actually am saved? That and that, that carried through, I mean, to now even like I don't think I really mentioned this at the beginning of our chat today, but like for people listening, like I have gone through kind of, you know, whatever you want to call it, a deconstruction or kind of rethinking of my beliefs and kind of recategorizing them as an adult because of some of the trauma that we faced growing up and the hurt that we experienced from people who were professing Christians. Yeah. And from current experiences and seeing the way that the church has failed so many people and organized religion has hurt so many people and being like, hold on, like, am I like, am I really going to put my name in this organizational religion thing? And, you know, and then that brings up the whole like feeling really alone because I am still like I identify as a Christian, I identify as a believer in Christ. And, but then I also have all these questions and like Mm -hmm. a lot of anger towards the church as an organization and frustration. And so trying to, to balance what that looks like and not really belonging to either, you know, fully deconstructed church rejecting, you know, religious rejecting groups of people, but then also not feeling that like giddy, you know, like belonging to any church where I'm like, you know, I'm just all in and I feel on fire for the Lord or feeling the Christian feels or whatever. And so that's been a, a process for me, even to this day. Mm-hmm. And so that like, sense of insecurity of whether or not I'm actually saved, whether or not I'm actually doing enough, like that still comes up for me. And I'm, I'm almost 30. Mm -hmm. And so like, you know, I'm not going to say 
left behind is the sole contributor to that anxiety. But it sparked a thing for me who is already like, I'm prone to be anxious, just who I am as a person. It sparked that in me and kind of set me on a course. And I think if you want to break it down into like what developmental stage I was going through, I think it was an attachment thing was I didn't have security attachment where I felt a sense of belonging and safety and security. Yeah. I knew that I wasn't going to be surprised in relationships by abandonment or hurt or, you know, a catch 22 or whatever it is. And so I hadn't developed that sense of security yet. And so it hit me at just the right time where I was like, I'm screwed. Like there is no way that I can ever know for sure that I'm saved. And so I'm just going to have to spend the rest of my life trying to prove that I'm good enough Yeah. and trying to, you know, not piss anyone off too much. And like it, it just, it started this like snowball of anxiety around faith and security and, you know, and professing a gracious and loving God to the outside world, but then internally being like, well, at any moment, God could change his mind and flip the script on me. Right. Or like you could just be fooling yourself. Yes. Yes. Like I could be, and not trusting myself, essentially not trusting that, that I, that I know what's going on inside me, not being able to trust anything of what, what my head is telling me or my emotions are telling me, you know, just, just not having any sense of trust for myself. Ugh, what a horrible way to feel, you know, like as a kid, I'm wondering too, if like, maybe the fact that it was dramatized and like on video and like you were seeing it visually, I wonder if that like added to why it was so distressing. Definitely. I mean, I think that it, you know, it doesn't have to be like, I think there are, you know, people could read a book when they're little or, you know, hear a story or whatever. But I think there is something to visualization, especially for kids. I mean, honestly, it's true for all of us, right? Like if we, we see something, it sticks with you in a different way than just hearing about something. Mm-hmm. Like right now with, with my, my older daughter is almost three. She, she's, <laughs> she's scared of every TV show in the universe. Um, like it can be a bird in a cartoon and she's terrified. Um, and it's like, there's, this is not a scary bird. This is a friendly bird. I don't understand what the problem here is, but it's just like, it's really overwhelming for her visually. And so like that kind of continues into, especially for some children, some children are extra triggered by stuff like that. And I think for me, like I literally can picture the face of this pastor he like broke down on his knees and was sobbing. And it was like, for me, I was like, that's going to be me. I'm going to be abandoned and alone. And like, and I can see it in my, in my mind's eye. And so I think like, I think you're right that that that's another developmental thing for kids. You know, that's why you don't show kids scary movies with, with jump scares because like they can't handle that. Exactly. Um, was there anything else that you feel like affected you as a kid? Yeah. So I just thought of something that I, I kind of wanted to mention that like, I feel like goes along with how I've processed, how I want to treat our girls as they grow up in religion. But so I had, I had an eating disorder early in college. Um, I had anorexia, really severe anorexia. Um, you got to see it mm-hmm. and I feel like every time I bring it up I have to apologize for what I what I put you through and you really don't need to keep apologizing oh I I think about trying to see my girls go through something like that now and it, it, it would break my heart and so I know that's scary um but I went through an eating disorder my freshman year of college and my parents didn't find out about it until it was really bad because they were they were still on the mission field and you you had told them that it was going on but i don't think they knew how bad it was yeah partially that i think they didn't really know what to do about it either yeah i think it was it was definitely uncharted territory and you know 
And so I went home. When I say home, I went back to the Philippines for Christmas break. And that was when they saw me. And I was I was deathly ill. And so they freaked out and they, you know, the mission organization got involved and um, that had sent them overseas and stuff and all that. And so basically it became like, it was, it was man, it was required for me to go to either inpatient treatment or intensive outpatient treatment. And like, they had to be seeing certain progress in order for me to uh, stay in school. And so uh, that was what I chose. I chose outpatient and stay in school. But my parents and the mission organization were super involved, which parents probably should have been. I was a minor, you know, it was, that made sense. But basically the organization that they worked for was having to like do check-ins with me through my parents and find out like how much weight I was gaining. And like our parents told me that if I wasn't making a certain amount of progress, that they were going to be asked to leave the mission field to come home and take care of me. God. And and first of all, it kind of pissed me off because I was like, well, why don't you want to come home and take care of me? <laughs> I just, you know, they had kind of decided what their priorities were. But the second thing was it was like this entire organization, all of these people were now in on my life and all of the details of what was going on with my life, um, my weight, my I don't know if they were receiving counseling records or not um, for my therapy sessions. Like, I don't know what they were privy to. No one ever told me. Yeah. Well, and I remember thinking at the time, like, what an invasion of privacy that was. Like, they wanted to have all this information, not because they were, like, genuinely concerned about you, but because they could decide whether or not, like, mom and dad needed to lose their, like, career as missionaries, you know, like... It, it just was so insensitive the way that it was handled. I did not have privacy. I did not ever have the option to give consent for anything like that. Um, and so that was really hurtful. Absolutely. By the way, the story ends that I'm okay now. I no longer have anorexia. And, um, it was a very necessary part of my healing journey. Um, and actually why a big reason why I got into therapy in the first place. Um, but when I think about now my girls, one of the biggest things that I want to give to them with their dad currently being in ministry, and even if he doesn't stay in ministry, um, that like, if we go to a church and we serve on staff or we serve as volunteers or we just are around other religious people. I don't want my kids to ever feel that I am dependent on them and how they make me look. Yeah. For them to be like good enough or loved or anything like that. Like I want, and this is something that I don't think either of us really got. I want my kids to be able to be kids and make stupid, boneheaded decisions, like make mistakes, do dumb things, like have mental health problems, and it not be something that I like internalize as reflecting on who I am as a human and ruining how I look to other Christians. Yeah, like a kid should never be afraid that being honest about what they're experiencing is gonna like mess up their parents lives yeah that pressure should never be put on a kid and and mm -hmm. i don't like i want my children to be able to like go through whatever the future holds for them and know that they don't have to hide it because it might impact our witness or whatever and like I, I just I want my kids to be able to be kids and then on mm -hmm. top of that for them to know that I am their mom more than I am a volunteer at church or more than their dad is on staff at a church like 
that right. is more important and that's always going to be more important like the way i talk about it with you know other christians is that like this is my primary calling is my kids like i know that beyond any other like you know work or living situation or whatever that my girls they are my main priority and and so like protecting their hearts and making sure that they are loved and safe and secure and and you know not that they never face anything hard because that's not the world we live in but being there for when they do and and walking with them and being available to them and whatever that looks like that to me is kind of like a prime example of how i saw parenting be done that i'm like mm, i'm gonna i'm gonna do that differently whatever whatever they go through i'm gonna create space for that and and make sure that i'm not holding anything else as like a higher priority than protecting mm -hmm. them and again not protecting them from the world and you know keeping them in a bubble but loving them yeah just like prioritizing them do you think there are other like parenting skills that might also help with this so i think a big thing that i try to teach my girls that i think is important for any parent whether you're religious or not is that they have a voice like telling your children like hey if you're uncomfortable with something i want you to to tell me and like you don't have to just like stuff your feelings um like recently my toddler has decided that she hates kisses <laughs> she hates kisses which stabs me in the soul because i want to kiss her constantly um <laughs> but she like i kissed her before bed one night and she said mommy stop and i said oh what what's wrong and she said i don't like kisses and i was like oh really and she was like yeah and i was like well what does it make what is what do kisses make you feel and you know and she's having a hard time kind of like naming feelings still so i'll like name feelings i'll be like just do they make you feel happy or sad or angry or you know, and so we kind of went through it. And then I said, does it, do, is it icky? And she was like, it's icky. And I was like, oh, okay. So you don't want mommy to kiss you um, anymore right now? And she said, yeah. And I was like, can I give you hugs? And she said, yeah, hugs are good. And like, now here's the thing. My toddler changes every month. So I'm sure in like two months, she'll grow out of this stage. And if she doesn't, like, okay, we'll ride that wave. Um, but, but, but like, I'm trying to teach her that like, she's allowed to vocalize, Hey, I'm uncomfortable about something. And mm -hmm. that is going to receive as a response. Oh, tell me about that. Tell me why. And like right now, like, I don't think that it is really like, I tried to ask her some questions about like, is there anyone else who has kissed you and it's made you uncomfortable? She said, no, mommy and daddy just kissed me. And, you know, and so like, you know, I'm ruling mm -hmm. other out, but, but like, but I'm trying to reinforce right now that when you have a concern or something that makes you uncomfortable or whatever, like, I want you to come to me with that. And I want you to be able to vocalize that. And I'm going to validate it. And I'm going to respect your boundaries and we're going to have a conversation about it where you don't feel like I'm just like, well, why are you so sensitive? Or, you know, like, I like giving you kisses, so get over it. You know what I mean? And so yeah. that's like a conversation that we're having. And again, like that's a really teeny tiny thing right now. That's like my toddler being dramatic and knowing that she can get under my skin when she tells me that she doesn't like kisses, but it's an important way for us to kind of build a sense of when you know when she gets to be 15 and she says you know mom i i felt really uncomfortable when one of my teachers said this to me or something like that that i'm not going to be like like well you were probably just overreacting you know like right like you don't want to invalidate her especially if her concerns are like legitimate exactly and so and and i have to leave my feelings out of that because like that hurts it if i'm being honest like that hurts my feelings when my two-year-old that I love so much tells me that she doesn't want me to give her a kiss. Like, 
I like had to hold back tears and like keep my shit together and like have a conversation and then go outside and be like, honey, I'm really sad. (laughs) Um, Uh But like, this isn't about me. Like this is about my baby and it is my job as an adult. Like I can self-regulate. I can do all of that. And I'm helping her like trust her body that like something about this, I don't like it. And Mm -hmm. I'm saying like, that's okay. And same deal. Like when I'm giving her a bath, I say like, do you want to wash your body or do you want mommy to wash your body? And like nine times out of 10, she says, mommy, wash my body. But every once in a while she says, I don't want you to wash my body. And I'm like, all right, cool. You just make sure you get clean. And, and so like making sure that she knows that she has autonomy and can vocalize concerns and things that make her uncomfortable. I think yeah. that's really important to start from a young age because I think once once you tell a kid enough times that like their voice doesn't matter or how they feel doesn't matter, they're gonna start stuffing that. Not that you can't change that later, but it's it's harder. I think it's it's something that you want it's a precedent you wanna set early on. Yeah. I, I love what you said about just like naming different emotions and just like giving her language. That seems so helpful like if you're if you're worried about your kid that they've you know experienced trauma or just that they're having a lot of anxiety like you want them to feel empowered by knowing how to describe those feelings and you know knowing that it's okay to talk about them out loud and helping i think like you said like helping identify what feelings are and what they feel like and that there aren't feelings that are bad. There, you know, there are feelings that, you know, don't feel good, but there aren't feelings that are off limits. Like it's not bad yeah. to be angry, not bad to be sad. Yeah. So connecting that back to, you know, preventing religious trauma, I could totally see that being a useful tool. Like after your kid, you know, comes home from Sunday school or whatever, just being like, tell me what you learned about and and like, what feelings did you feel when you were hearing that Bible story or whatever, you know, because the, the Sunday school teacher or whoever it is, isn't always going to know what your kid is sensitive to. And, and they're not, they also just don't have the time to like check in with every single kid about like how they're emotionally processing. But so if, if somebody is, worried about their kid like what are some signs that parents could look for that would maybe tip them off to that um that's a really good question so you know there's there's simple things like they start having a lot of anger or if they are becoming really withdrawn another one would be like if your if your kid is consistently like i really don't like going to that that class or that church or that whatever like asking questions and being like, what, what don't you like about it? Like, what, like, is it, mm-hmm. does it make you uncomfortable? Is there, are there like certain, like they might be being bullied or there might be, you know, I mean, Lord help us, there might be a predator, you know, there's, there could be all sorts right. of things. Um, but like just being curious about that stuff and, and doing it in a non-accusatory way where you're not like, well, why don't you like it? Like it's, we like it or your sister likes it or your brother likes it like why don't you have a good time like just right i want to understand for me this this wasn't exactly uh religious related but when i was young i had a, a a trauma around illness happen and for years i was crying every night almost getting out of bed terrified that i was going to throw up mm-hmm. and there was a whole lot of like, well, you need to be praying and asking God to like give you courage and like, no, I needed therapy. Like this happened, like if your kid has like something they get stuck on for like a, like a month or something, that's, that's different. But if you see this pattern that is like continuing through and like not going away, not getting better, yeah, it's like that's a sign that something needs to be addressed. And and also like the whole like pray about it more or talk to God about it or read scripture like okay, that those things are that's a that's a really good thing to 
to teach your kids if that's something that you value. Like we're all going to raise our kids the way that we think is is best. Um, and everyone raises their kids with values. Nobody raises kids that are just like a totally blank slate and think for themselves because that's not how the world works. We teach our kids values. Like if you are agnostic and you don't believe there's a God, you're teaching your kids that value. If you're a Christian and you teach them that there's a God, they grow up knowing that you have that value. And so like, sure, like you can use language like that around religious stuff related to their anxiety, but there's a reason that there's education around mental health because we know that that's the same reason you take your kid to the doctor when they're sick and don't right. just worry about it is why you take your kid to a therapist if like they're not getting better. And, and so like acknowledging that and having a respect for when things are out of your league, like knowing that you need to bring in somebody with training, that's not like saying you're a failure. I wish mom and dad had, had dealt with this issue sooner mm -hmm. because literally like I'm in therapy now because I have health anxiety and if that had been dealt with when I was a kid and I could have processed that trauma when I was still like growing and my brain was developing that might not be a thing that I'm having to deal with now and like it's something you can deal with as an adult and, and which is why I'm doing it but like mm -hmm. worth like noticing when they're younger and it's it's not a, a failure like we all make mistakes as parents and we all we can't control everything that happens to our children and so things are going to happen but i think having the eyes to like see when they have happened and and address it is that's a win in parenting right like that's you've done something yeah. right if you're willing to address hurt that your children have experienced I really like the point that you made about like using things like, you know, pray about it or talk to God or, you know, have courage or, or, you know, just trust in God. It's like whether your kid has experienced trauma, religious trauma, or just even a bad experience of any kind, like when you say those little spiritual placations, I think it's important to think about what message that sends. Like, I, I definitely remember being told that as a kid um, when I was experiencing a lot of trauma responses um, starting at around age eight. And I remember thinking at the time, like, I'm praying, I'm doing all the things that I'm being told are like supposed to fix the problem. But it's not fixing my anxiety. It's not fixing my nightmares. It's not fixing like my, you know, just not wanting to be around any other human beings. And like, I think that created a lot of shame because it was kind of like this is supposed to be working. And the fact that it's not must mean that there's something wrong with me. And I think we can help kids out by not pretending like that's the one and only solution to their problems. Because if it doesn't fix the problem, they don't need to feel like that's their fault. It might just mean that they need a different kind of help. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think so much shame is tied to things like that, where it's like, you know, and especially, again, going back to development like kids don't understand that that's not that's not how god works you know that it's not like it's not a transactional relationship and obviously there are there are forms of christianity that do teach a very transactional relationship with god but but that like uh you know there's there's not a you know they understand like punishment and do something wrong and you get a consequence and like they don't understand the nuances of like you know life and the experiences that we have as adults to be able to have a context for those things kids don't get that and so having that internalized shame of like well what am I doing wrong that my prayers aren't working and you know what I mean and it's just like I think that that can be really scary and then add 
a whole other layer of anxiety and fear and, you know, and hurt on top of whatever the existing problem already is. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Is there anything that we haven't gotten to today that you wanted to say? I think something that I do want to say is that obviously, no, I am not, I am not an expert parent by any stretch of the imagination. Like I have a, oh my gosh, almost six month old and a almost three-year-old. Um, there are a lot of stages of parenting that I have not gone through yet. Um, and I think that is, is important as we talk about this, you know, I'm, I'm here talking about parenting and child development and all that stuff, but I've only gone through a little bit of that with my kids. Um, and so I think, you know, people listening to this with teenagers or, or whatever, I, I would really encourage you to do research about development and, and kind of where, where your kids are at and do the best kind of research, which is talking to your kids and trying to understand them and things from their perspective and not shaming them for thinking of things the way that they do because they're not finished being cooked yet. They're still, (laughs) they're still in process. Well, and not to mention that they might have a different brain type than you, you know, like they might just process the world differently. Yes, totally. And I think one thing that kind of came to mind while we were talking about like how I want to do things differently with my girls, with them being raised in the church is my girls are, they're going to be different and they're going to have different experiences and they are going to come to different conclusions. And, you know, I mentioned like we all teach our children values that we have. Um, and we want what's best for them. And so we hope that they choose the same values that we do. But I think I would encourage parents to create a, a create a culture in your home of belonging and acceptance, no matter how your kids turn out, no matter how close to or far from what you had in mind when they were little and growing up of what you thought they would turn out like, it's really important for children to feel that sense of belonging and have that secure attachment with the people who are supposed to love them the most. And I say that as much for my benefit as for others, because it's scary raising kids and it's really, really hard. Like I love my girls so much feels like my heart could explode sometimes and they're little shits sometimes too but not holding on so tightly to your dreams for them or your ideas for them that you neglect who they actually are i think if we had more of that there would be a lot healthier people in society Mm, I completely agree with that idea of, you know, not making it seem like your love and acceptance of your kids is contingent on them agreeing with you and like having the same opinions as you, because, you know, the outcome of that is one of two things. Either they hide anything from you that they know you're not going to like, or they never learn how to think for themselves. And like, Neither of those outcomes is positive, in my opinion. Yeah, absolutely. It's important that we teach them how to think rather than just what to think. Because eventually they're not going to have you there to tell them what to do. Or eventually they're not going to care what you say. Right. And you want to have equipped them as best you can for facing what is actually out in the world. And that's going to be different than the things that that we face. Helping them to think for themselves, to think independently, think critically, all that kind of stuff. That is more important than just cramming a bunch of demands and stuff like that down their throat. Absolutely. I think, you know, that's an important message for parents, even who aren't religious, but especially when 
you are teaching your kids a belief system, you want to be careful not to make it seem like anybody who doesn't agree with you is stupid because that basically tells your kid if they don't agree with you, you're going to think they're stupid or you're not going to love them as much. Well, I think it's also a really fear-based way of parenting, right? Like none of us make good decisions when we're living in a state of fear. And so like if you were constantly just like, I have to save my kid and like, it'll be a nightmare if they're not a Christian or, you know, or or whatever it is that you're. Yeah. Or what if they get into the occult because they read Harry Potter or what if they become alcoholics because they listen to too much rock music? whatever whatever it is like don't parent out of fear because like that has never worked in the history of the world all you're doing is making yourself think that you have control when you actually don't have any control and you're making your kids feel like they don't have any control over their life when they do and they should and should absolutely yeah for sure Well, Twyla, thank you so much for taking the time to be here. Um, Before we wrap up, though, I want to see if you have a funny church culture story to share. Um, Sure. So so when I was in college, I did a vacation Bible school, um, which is just like a little church camp thing they do during the summer for kids. And there was this little boy who was like eight years old or something. And, um, he got saved during the week and he, um, (laughs) he came up to me and like, we'd been, you know, playing dodgeball and all that stuff during the week. And, um, I was one of the like leaders or whatever, but he came up to me at the end of the week and he was like, so, uh, I just like, I wanted to let you know that I think the Lord wants us to date. Oh. And he literally said, I've had, I've dated like a lot of like bad girls in the past. What? And, um, and I really think that like, it's, it's time for me to like date like Christian women. Oh my gosh. This is like an eight year old. And I was like, damn. Ako <laughs> taco. <laughs> Nineteen-year-old self, and I was like, "Oh my gosh!" <laughs> um, and, so, and I was like, "You know, God's gonna have to chat with me about that." Um, so super no. Um, well, but he picked up on that God card like early. Yeah, and the God card in in Christian dating is honestly epic, and by epic, I mean cringy, like. I've had so many people who've either pulled that card or the other way where they're like, I feel like the Lord is calling me to a season of singleness right now. So like, I can't date you. Like, just tell me you don't like my personality. It's fine. (laughs) But it's funny because you sent me this question ahead of time to be like thinking about. And I was like chatting with my husband about it. And he was like, and I like told him the story. And he was like, you know, you did this to me. I was like, wait, what? And he was like, the first time I asked you out, you told me that God was calling to a season of singleness and that you did. And I'm like, it's so true. I just, just, I was not into him. He was a little nerdy dude. And I just did not think he was my type. And I was just like too, too much of a wimp to be like, no, I'm good. Thanks for asking, but I'll pass. And I pulled the God card on him. So um, kudos to him for calling you out on your hypocrisy. <laughs> like, he was like, um, you are the problem. And I was like, mm-hmm. time to look at the plank in your own eye. <laughs> but I was like, I super did that. Oh, my word. <laughs> oh, totally. Like I, every single breakup and like getting together with somebody that I remember doing was always like blamed on Jesus. <laughs> yep. Yep. Cause I mean, God forbid we just have our own feelings and like take ownership of them. <laughs> nope. Nope. Not allowed to have your own feelings and just like be like, you know what? I'm not that interested in you. So thanks, but no thanks. Well, thank you for that blast from the past. 
Twyla, thank you so much for being here. I'm so proud of you and I love you so much. I love you too. And I'm so, I'm so glad that you're doing this podcast and like, I love listening to it and just like hearing the different perspectives and hearing the stories from all the people. And like, it's, it's such an encouragement to know that like, we're not alone in this experience. And I think that like, you're the perfect person for making people feel not alone. You have been my safe place for so many years and it's really sweet to get to see how you are a safe place for so many other people now oh you're so sweet she's still mine so back off all of you other people but um but i think like it's it's such a sweet thing to get to see you thrive in that because you do it so well i'm just i'm proud of you too so i love you love you too bye bye Well, that's all she wrote for this episode. If you have any questions, lean not on your own understanding. Shoot me an email at Anna at empathyparadigm.com. Bye.